Hello and welcome back. I'm Dandy Zhu, and you're listening to Digital Health Forward, a podcast dedicated to sharing the stories of healthcare entrepreneurs, leaders, and executives who are moving the digital health industry forward. Today, I had a chance to chat with Sami Inkinen, co-founder and CEO of Verda Health. Verda is an online specialty medical clinic that helps people reverse type 2 diabetes and other chronic conditions safely and sustainably without the risks, costs, or side effects of medications or surgery. Verda's innovations in nutritional biochemistry, data science, and digital tools, combined with their clinical expertise, are shifting the diabetes treatment paradigm from management to reversal. In this episode, Sami and I talk about his personal motivations for starting Verta Health, how Verta Health actually goes about reversing type 2 diabetes, how they've been able to successfully establish a 100% fees at risk business model, and his biggest learnings and advice to other healthcare entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Sami. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited to learn more about your personal story as a serial entrepreneur um, and hear more about the impact that Verda is having on reversing diabetes. Excited to share our journey, but uh, as I say in generally, it's always day one. Exactly. Well, great. Well, let's dive right in. I want to start by discussing a little bit about your Medium post that I stumbled upon. Um, You wrote this a while back, but it was titled, When Profits Fuel Purpose, Magic Happens. And in this post, you encourage us to ask ourselves two questions when we think about companies. One is, do I understand the true purpose of the company that I'm starting or I'm joining? And two, does that purpose really resonate at some deeper level than just making a buck or only providing momentary excitement. So tell us a little bit about this article. I found it really interesting and maybe how this also ties into your purpose behind starting Verta Health. Yeah, well, thanks for finding my my post, Profits Fuel Purpose. And um, well, maybe I'll, I'll start by sharing Verta Health's mission, that is to reverse type 2 diabetes in 100 million people by 2025. And that's probably the statement or the mission that every single one of our employees knows, even if you wake them up at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. <laughs> in, in the morning. And the reason I wrote this Medium post, Profits Field Purpose, is a couple of things. One, I, I noticed that there's a lot of companies around where, you know, whatever widget they were producing, they kind of justified the purpose of the company by maybe having a system where they say, hey, we're going to put 1% of our profit or revenues or 1% of our equity into something that truly makes the world a better place for everyone. And obviously that's better than not doing anything. But as Mm -hmm. I thought of it personally, and as I share for our team members, I'm like, well, wait a second. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could actually use 100% of your professional efforts day in and day out, working on something that actually making the world a better place to be for other people, rather Mm -hmm. than working on something that, yeah, it's a business, and then you kind of make yourself feel fulfilled because 1% of the potential profits of that company goes into something that you care about. Right. So that was kind of the one reason for this post. Like really think about carefully 
and we can think about carefully, most of us in America, not necessarily everyone, but we have the luxury of being able to choose between jobs and companies that we join. So, so that was one reason that why don't you harness 100% of your energies and intellect and work time on something that makes the world a better place in a way that you care about. And then the second reason, and I guess why I titled the post Profits for Your Purpose is within a company, I think it's very important if it's a mission-driven company or whatever the end outcome the company is trying to achieve, which in the case of Verta is reversing type 2 diabetes, is to make sure that the business model is aligned with the end impact. And like, you know, our case, what, what we've done is that we get paid for actually treating patients and mm. actually making them healthy. So even if somebody accidentally just wants to maximize profit, it would only be possible by delivering more of the good that we want to achieve, which, of course, in our case is, is reversing type 2 diabetes. So there are a couple of reasons for that. But really, I'm trying to encourage people to think carefully. How do you use your lifetime? and most of our wake-up hours goes to work. So <laughs> if you can do something that's yeah. meaningful, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a great push and definitely easier said than done. I think a lot of us want to find something fulfilling perhaps, but sometimes lose sight of that and trade that off for you know other short-term gratification, whether it's higher income or higher status or reputation or whatever that might be. But at the end of the day, you know, harnessing that energy, like you said, to doing something that will make the world a better place is probably the best approach if we really want to be happy and find meaning and real fulfillment in our jobs, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think on the business model side, it's especially salient in the healthcare industry where that doesn't the business model aligned with the impact is not always true, especially in a fee-for-service environment. And I think it's it's really admirable that this, this was so core to the thinking of Verda from the very, very beginning. Yeah, and maybe it's partially because my formal educational training is physics. So I did master's in physics way back in Finland where I grew up. And so I, I tend to be a little bit of a systems thinker. And I think on a societal level or how even the U.S. healthcare works, you kind of get what you pay for. And so in order to achieve something, you want to define and design a system that makes people do what you want them to do. And to take a sort of a counter example, maybe in, in a US healthcare, I think a lot of outsiders who come into healthcare, they start asking these questions like, oh my God, how is it <laughs> possible that we, I don't know, we perform back surgeries when people literally would be better off? And you know, there's a bunch of studies on this by just waiting or doing physical therapy. Like, how, it's just crazy. How is this possible? And so, and I don't think there's bad meaning people who perform operations that they shouldn't. It's just that if you have a system that incentivizes people to like in a fee for service system, the more transactions you generate, the more you get paid. Right. That's what you end up getting. So I approach a lot of things from a kind of a systems perspective. And again, I wanted to make sure that our business model of Verta is a hundred percent aligned with why I founded the company. And again, we founded the company to make people healthy and specifically reverse type 2 diabetes. So mm -hmm. if you create a system that incentivizes everyone to do that, it's way more likely to happen. 
Yeah. And we'll definitely dive more into that business model later in the episode. Um, But to set a little bit of context, you spent 11 years before Verda co-founding Trulia, which is a real estate marketplace, very different from healthcare. So tell us a little bit about how you jumped from real estate to wanting to start Verda in the first place. Yeah, well, (laughs) (laughs) I I remember when we, me and my wonderful co-founder Pete Flint, we, we founded Trulia, people were asking, how did two physicists my co-founder, Pete, had a physics degree from Oxford. How did two physicists from Europe <laughs> decided to start an online real estate marketplace in residential real estate in America, which is one of the toughest industries to break into, that that doesn't make any sense? And so I, I kind of get the similar question now as it relates to healthcare, because I'm not a doctor by training. I'm an immigrant. I'm a technologist and spent most of my, as you mentioned, a decade before Verta in residential real estate. Like, how do you go to healthcare? And it doesn't really make any sense when you think about my background. But to explain briefly, uh, it wasn't like I was looking to even start another company. And I certainly wasn't looking at healthcare as, oh, my God, so much money is being made and maybe wasted. I want to build another successful business there. It was none of that. So what happened to me was during those truly years, I was a relatively high-performing endurance athlete. I had done a lot of triathlons. I had done the Hawaii Ironman World Championships seven times. And wow. In fact, I, I, I won the World Championships in my age group in triathlon uh, 2011, I believe. Amazing. And so I was a fit athlete while also building Trulia. And so what happened very soon after that, I discovered that I was pre-diabetic and on my way to becoming type 2 diabetic. And at least for me, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance. Like, how is that possible? How can a lean endurance athlete be on his way to becoming type 2 diabetic? Because at least I had seen it as a kind of a lifestyle disease. You gain weight and you don't take care of yourself. Like, how is that possible? Right. And so... It was that frustration and that surprise that really got me interested in metabolic health, obesity, and diabetes. And I was just scratching my head, literally, like, how is that possible? And as it often is, if if you have sort of a counter data point to the prevailing narrative, or at least as a physicist, I'm like, well, wait a second. The prevailing narrative is people eat too much, they gain weight, they become type 2 diabetic. And consequently, we are treating it as a chronic progressive disease where you get it uh, and we know the reasoning behind it. And then we just treat it with diabetes medications as a chronic progressive disease. Mm-hmm. But here I am, a fit athlete, and I'm on my way. Like, this just doesn't fit that kind of hypothesis or narrative. And so long story short, it was in my own frustration that I then met with a bunch of scientists who had been doing research in this area and discovered that maybe the prevailing narrative isn't right. And in fact, that this chronic progressive disease type 2 diabetes is actually systematically reversible. And without going into the very details, I just became absolutely convinced that this perhaps the largest or one of the largest health epidemics at least before COVID-19, type 2 diabetes, is actually a problem that could be solved and could be solved in a novel way. 
And so to your question, how do you go to healthcare? It wasn't like I had spent decades thinking about healthcare or saw it as a business opportunity. I literally saw that there's a problem that nobody else had been able to solve. And then I accidentally stumbled on a solution to something that would have potentially impact on hundreds of millions of people and saving hopefully hundreds of billions of dollars, at least in America. And I just felt like I cannot be sitting on this secret. Like I have to go and make this happen. And I know how to make it happen. So it was that I kind of fell in love with the ability to have impact. And there was, I needed zero analytical left brain thinking or spreadsheets. And like you, I've worked at McKinsey, so I can certainly do the spreadsheets, but it was none of that. I just said, here's the problem. Nobody has been able to solve it. I can totally see how this can be solved. I have to make it happen. And that was kind of, then it was off to the races in 2014. Wow, that is incredible and a very powerful story that this is so grounded in something you personally experienced and then, you know, very much motivated by not wanting to keep this secret to yourself and hopefully be able to help others. To to put it into context for our listeners, I mean, 10% of US adults, about 30 million people have diabetes and we're spending about $30 billion per year just on medications alone. And those numbers are staggering. And to be able to reverse that, um, like you said, I think is a it's a huge opportunity, but also can make a very substantial impact on individuals' lives. Um, before we dive into exactly what happens with patients who have diabetes and what happens with Verda, could you just help explain a little bit in layman's terms what the difference is between pre-diabetes and type 1 and type 2 diabetes is? Yeah, sure. So let, let me start from the type 1 versus type 2 diabetes. Because the the labels sound very similar, but they are completely two different diseases. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Verta focuses on type two diabetes, which is ninety five percent or more of the type two di- of the type diabetes cases in America. So so majority of type two diabetes and diabetes cost is really type two diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is kind of sometimes called the adult onset diabetes or lifestyle disease. And type 1 diabetes um, is, is a different disease. It's an autoimmune disease where literally your beta cells in pancreas don't produce insulin. And, you know, it may start when you're young or, or it may start oftentimes when you're young and sometimes at your later age. But it's a very different disease. Um, so type 1 is an autoimmune disease and type 2 is a disease of high blood sugar where your body still produces insulin, but you become insulin resistant. And it's often called a lifestyle disease mm. and has a very high degree of correlation with obesity. And what type 2 diabetes is, if you think of it very simplistically, it's a disease of high blood sugar. So you constantly have high blood sugar and high blood sugar causes both microvascular and macrovascular complications. So an example of microvascular complications uh, may be uh, retinopathy or issues in your eyes and you start losing sense in your toes and your, your fingers and those kinds of things and can lead into amputations. And then, of course, macrovascular complications. It could be a heart attack or heart disease. And oftentimes, people with type 2 diabetes don't directly die from type 2 diabetes, but they die from heart-related complications. 
So that's type one and type two. So majority of diabetes is type two, and that's what the focus is. And pre-diabetes is a step before type two diabetes. And so if you think of the underlying driver of type two diabetes being insulin resistance, pre-diabetes is really just that you are slightly less insulin resistant and typically leads into type two diabetes. And so how do you know that practically? Uh, you can have a blood test mm-hmm. in, in a sort of a regular screening. And the higher your blood sugar is, the more likely you're going to be type 2 diabetic. And then if it's elevated but not high enough, then you're pre-diabetic. And people may have heard this term HbA1c or A1c. It's sort of an average blood sugar over about 90-day period. And again, there's certain thresholds for type 2 and certain threshold for prediabetes. But it's basically a spectrum. If you think of what's happening in your body, whether you are type 2 diabetic formally or almost type 2 diabetic, it's more or less the same thing. It's just a matter of where you are on the spectrum of elevated blood glucose. Got it. And so previously before Verda, if a patient got diagnosed with either prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, what would a doctor tell them they need to do? What would they, what would they prescribe? Yeah, well, for pre-diabetes, usually it's like, hey, you should get some exercise and try to lose weight. So mm-hmm. that's what you would you would hear. And unfortunately, um, you know, we have three decades of history that telling people to do some exercise and lose some weight is very prudent advice, but the efficacy is very low. So people don't tend to then end up losing weight, at least in a sustainable way. So it doesn't really work even though the intention behind the recommendation is good. And then for type 2 diabetes, uh, there's a whole kind of, a, um, I guess, escalation of, of therapies. But initially, people on type 2 diabetes, of course, they encourage to do the same thing, get some exercise, lose some weight. Again, hasn't really worked. And then there's a whole escalation therapy where typically the treatment is diabetes drugs hypoglycemic drugs that in different ways reduce your blood sugar. And there are a good dozen or dozens of different diabetes drugs. And the care guidelines have kind of a ladder where you are being prescribed increasingly powerful drugs. And typically you end up with insulin, which obviously is expensive and has a lot of side effects. But you may start from metformin and then from there you get another drug and another drug and then you typically end up uh, on insulin eventually. So, but most importantly, you could think of it as it's, it's a lifelong chronic progression where your blood sugar keeps creeping up and then you are being increasingly prescribed more potent medications to try to keep the blood sugar lower, but there's really no light at the end of a tunnel. It's just a whack-a-mole with high blood sugar. That's the traditional approach to treating type 2 diabetes. Yeah. And it sounds incredibly stressful for patients who maybe they have the desire, but maybe they don't have the resources or the know-how to actually lose weight and sustain that. Right. And so I understand that there's this, this prevailing narrative that you mentioned about it being chronic and progressive and, you know, patients probably hear that and feel helpless and it becomes probably like a a bad cycle, but tell us about what Verda's approach is and, and how you've clearly challenged this notion. Yeah, well, Verda is a provider-led telemedicine company where we treat our patients remotely and and virtually in 
in all 50 states now. But rather than just providing provider-led support, prescribing medications and monitoring patients remotely, we actually use highly individualized nutrition protocols to reverse type 2 diabetes. So yes, we are a telemedicine company. We provide support for our patients two to three times, not per month or not per quarter, but two to three times a day, primarily asynchronously. So there's a very high degree of support by providers and coaches. But even the best support doesn't help unless you have the right protocols to address type 2 diabetes and its its underlying driver of insulin resistance. So we use behavior chains to deliver our nutrition protocols. So we don't sell food or ship food. So we use behavior chains to help our patients adhere to these protocols to, to achieve the results that we have. And everything we do as it relates to nutrition and behavior chains is highly individualized. But to try to simplify it, we primarily use carbohydrate restriction. So we individualize the carbohydrate intake for our patients and make it possible within their existing lifestyle and other restrictions that they may have access to food or food allergies or socioeconomic status or even ethnicity and so forth. So with the combination of those two things, intensive support virtually by our coaches and providers and then right nutrition protocols, we can actually reverse type 2 diabetes and get patients off of medications like insulin rapidly and safely and and sustainably. And so there's actually no emphasis on weight loss at all. So we don't tell our patients, try to lose some weight and go exercise. Instead, we individualize your nutrition intake uh, and provide all this support to achieve the results. So it's pretty orthogonal approach to this traditional take your drugs and try to exercise and lose weight. Right. And help us visualize exactly what patients are being told when they first onboard you know, what sort of information are they receiving? And then what what these daily interactions look like? Is that encouragement? Is it telling them to change part of their diet and, you know, work with them through that? What What is the nature of those interactions on an ongoing basis? Yeah, absolutely. Well, l- let me separate it into, into two pieces. So one is, how does this continuous remote care and support works? And then two is, like, how do we actually implement the behavior chains and, and the nutrition protocols in, in practice. So on the first, how does this continuous remote care work? Again, it's kind of like a closed loop system where we we monitor patients remotely multiple times a day. So we get their biomarkers. So we actually know what's going on in the body. And mm-hmm. the most obvious biomarker is blood glucose that we track. And then we have our system and our software and our providers and our coaches get all this data, not just the biomarkers, but also natural language. So you could think of like texting or chatting uh, from our patients. So we get all this data. And then based on that incoming data, we determine what kind of support or help you need. And typically, as I mentioned before, we interface with our patients two to three times a day, which, which is a huge difference to yeah. being a primary care physician two to three times a year. <laughs> so that's the one part, the first part, the continuous remote care. So you could think of it as a closed loop system where we we know what's happening in your body, we get that data, and then we guide you and support you to get to the right outcome. And then the second piece is what you asked. So how do you, like, what do you tell nutrition-wise? Mm-hmm. Again, it's all behavior change-based, and nothing is one-size-fits-all. So th- there isn't like, hey, here's the five foods you can eat, and here's the five you cannot. 
some people cook at home. So if that's the case, we help them kind of understand what to cook, recipes and those kinds of things. We work with, let's say, an employer, U.S. Foods. We treat truck drivers. So mostly they have access to fast food restaurants by highway. So then we have to explain, like, how do you reverse your diabetes on, I'll mention one brand here, but I'm not calling them out. But how do you reverse your type 2 diabetes on McDonald's diet? Yeah. Very different again. And then I was actually just reading a patient testimonial. I think it was yesterday. We had a, a ship captain, a captain of a ship who's on his boat for 20, I think it's 28 days. So four weeks at a time. So the guidance for him through behavior changes is obviously very different because he's kind of a captive audience on his boat <laughs> for 30 days or 28 days at a time. And so we individualize based on, on your situation. Sometimes even to the level like, hey, I'm, I'm on a vacation. I'm going to a restaurant XYZ. What can I eat to succeed on my journey to reverse type 2 diabetes? So it's a high degree of individualization. Um, but as a principle, we encourage our patients to eat to satiety. So again, this is just an example that it's not about forcing people to lose weight by applying willpower, but it's about individualizing the nutrition protocols to reverse your insulin system. And that does not require that you're hungry all the time. So that's a huge difference with what we do versus the traditional approach, again, that encourages you to exercise and starve yourself to lose some weight. Right. And I think it's incredible that you guys meet the patient where they are in their lifestyle and their job. You know, the the fact that you can be a truck driver who is mostly going to fast food restaurants, but still find success and progress through Verda, I think is just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it is necessary to, to deliver the results and the long-term results. You know, we have in our clinical trial, we had 83% patient retention at one year and typical interventions of this sort. <laughs> you don't even see 83% off the first week. And at, at one year, you're looking at 20, 30%. So mm-hmm. to have an 83% retention, you have to individualize. If you tell people, here's the thing to do, good luck with it, you, you just lose them. So this high degree of individualization is, is absolutely necessary. And we've now, yeah, some of the populations are challenging. We work with the U.S. Veterans Administration. and A lot of veterans, it, it's not an easy population to treat. You may have PTSD. You may have other things that interfere. Mm. We work with a number of Na- Native American tribes like the Chickasaw Nation or Mashantukatequa Tribal Nation. Uh, and I just mentioned these because they are obviously very specific groups of people with very specific issues and food access issues and then also personal preferences. So you just have to individualize. And I think that's a, a thing that there may be a lot of technologies coming to healthcare may sometimes forget that you're treating human beings. Mm-hmm. Everyone's different. And you really have to take that highly personalized approach if you want to be successful. Absolutely. Um, the retention rate also stood out to me when I was reading about the company beforehand, given that it's you know two to six times higher than many other nutritional programs and medication programs. And it makes a lot of sense that this personalization factor plays a big role there. Um, could you tell us a little bit more also about the other clinical outcomes you've been seeing through the studies that you, you've conducted? Yeah, 
Well, I guess first sort of the x-axis time and duration is, is worth mentioning here. So we now have five plus year data. So we have very long-term data. Uh, we published 10-week results peer-reviewed, one-year results peer-reviewed, and two-year results peer-reviewed. And we've shared some of the three-and-a-half-year data. And uh, we're in the process of collecting and writing up our five-year data. So we do have data to show that we can achieve our results quickly sustainably, and then over many, many, many years. So that's just kind of the duration thing. And then in terms of specific results, I'll share some one and two year. So patient retention, again, 83% at one year, 74% at two years. At one year, 60% of our patients had what we call type 2 diabetes reversed. And that means off of all diabetes-specific medications, and then blood sugar is below the diabetes limit. Sixty wow. percent, you know, it compares to about zero percent in standard of care. So, sixty <laughs> percent is not hundred percent, but it's it's awfully a lot better than zero. Right. And then the remaining forty percent also improved substantially, but obviously they didn't meet the threshold of what we call diabetes reversal. Uh, economically, we saved about five thousand, not five hundred, five thousand dollars per patient per year in gross savings. And this is both eliminating pharmaceuticals and medical claims costs. So diabetes is an expensive disease. You mentioned the $30 billion a year in drug costs in America, but the total cost is more than $300 billion per year. So if you divide the $300 billion with 30 million people with type 2 diabetes, you get about $10,000. So the additional cost of diabetes Per person is about ten thousand a year, so we save about half of that when we reverse. So that's economically, and then just a big one medication example: insulin. On the dose level, we eliminate about eighty percent of insulin from start to two years. So eighty percent of all the insulin doses eliminated, while actually improving blood sugar control. And then there's many other metabolic health markers that improve. People lose an average of 12% of body weight at one year, which is wow. also pretty much unheard of in any kind of a lifestyle treatment that is in bariatric surgery. Mm-hmm. We've also published papers on improvement in cardiovascular disease risk markers, improvement in inflammation, improvement in uh, blood pressure improvement in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease markers. This may also almost like, oftentimes when I share these results, it sounds like too good to be true. How is that possible? (laughs) But it turns out that it's not, it actually, it is not surprising. The reason is we don't address one symptom like high blood sugar. We address the underlying drivers of type 2 diabetes, and that's insulin resistance, inflammation, and then a positive side effect is weight loss. So if you think of most physicians and scientists would agree that if you can eliminate insulin resistance, inflammation, and obesity, most of the metabolic health conditions improve. And that's exactly what we see in our data. So it's a pretty broad spectrum positive impact. Yeah. And by targeting the root cause, you're also eliminating a lot of those medication costs too, right? And the reliance on medication. Totally. So recently you've considered, or you actually recently have expanded, I believe, into also targeting prediabetes um, and obesity as other metabolic diseases. Um, Tell us about the rationale behind this scope expansion and what's in store for the company there. 
Yeah, so we, we did recently announce and are already practically doing it that we can also treat people who are pre-diabetic and may not already be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and then also people specifically with, with obesity to help them with weight loss. Well, there's really two reasons what was driving this. So one is biologically, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is just a spectrum. So pre-diabetes, obesity often correlates with that, and type 2 diabetes. It's more or less the same thing. It's just that how far you are on the spectrum. So what we do scientifically and practically, it's no different if you have a late-stage pre-diabetes or early type 2. It is the same thing. So there isn't that big of a change. We're treating the same thing in the same way. And then secondly, the business reason is we now work with hundreds of large organizations from Comcast to the Veterans Administration and multiple health plans and Home Depot and GE and lots mm-hmm. of large employers. So a lot of these partners came to us and said, hey, these results that you've shown and delivered are absolutely amazing. Could you also help our folks who have prediabetes? Or could you help with obese employees or members who may not have diagnosed type 2 diabetes yet. And of course, when your existing customers and partners come to you and say, could you do this? And we know that we have the capabilities. Why not? So those were some of the reasons why we wanted to do that. And fundamentally, that's why we started Verda. We want to make people healthy. And if the underlying drivers, and they are the same for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, it's just an opportunity to make more people healthier. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, You mentioned all the employers and health plans you're working with. Back to the business model point, could you tell us a bit more about how um, these contracts and partnerships are structured and how how Verda takes on risk when it comes to the outcomes of the patients? Yeah, well, we've definitely tried to keep everything like K-I-S-S, so keep it stupid simple. Uh, At the same time, align our interest with our patients and with our customers or enterprise customers' interests. So the model is very simple. We get paid on a per-patient basis, and then our fees are tied to clinical outcomes. And so another way to put that is, we or, or say that is that we put 100% of our fees at risk. We don't deliver results, you don't pay, and you only pay for actual patients treated. And honestly, that's how healthcare should be. You shouldn't be paid for showing up. You shouldn't be paid for churning more transactions. You should be paid for doing your work. That actually leads to some results. Absolutely. And when you say that you're only getting paid if um, there are results, is there some sort of tiering or is there sort of a threshold in which you say, okay, we've either reversed or diabetes or how, how do you decide sort of when that point in which you get paid is? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, yes, that's correct. Our payments are tied to thresholds to uh, clinically validated measurements around diabetes care and diabetes reversal mm-hmm. that are easy to quantify. And then in some cases tied to specific economic savings. So I have learned one thing in, in healthcare that you do want to be flexible with, with your customers because employers and health plans and government to some extent may have different ways in which they want to pay and look at the business model. So you don't want to be too dogmatic 
So flexibility is key. Great. So switching gears a little bit, I wanted to hear if you had any thoughts on the new Biden administration and any health policy changes that we expect as it relates to patients living with diabetes or virtual care and telemedicine more broadly? Yeah, well, I don't have the crystal ball and (laughs) predicting (laughs) politics and policy can be hard. I guess I would just say what we do at Verta in that we deliver better care or more convenient care through telemedicine. So that solves the access problem. We deliver substantially better outcomes in type 2 diabetes by reversing it. And then simultaneously, we save money for payers and taxpayers. It's very bipartisan. Like who wouldn't want to solve the access problem, which also solves the equity problem, better outcomes and lower costs. So I haven't really thought of policy too much. And I I wouldn't be the policy expert. I would just say that it's better outcomes, lower costs, and solving the access problem is is a very bipartisan thing. So whoever Mm -hmm. is kind of in charge of the country and however the payments are paid, everybody wants to see those happen. But, you know, as as a citizen, I, I would say that I think there's a lot of work to be done to solve the access problem. I think there's a lot of work to be done to facilitate and enable telemedicine better. I think our society should move even more aggressively to mo- towards value-based payments, not to fee-for-service. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think there may be there may be a lot of things to be done in public health, so that not every, everything becomes kind of a healthcare cost. I think there's a lot of things that could be done to prevent people from becoming very, very costly users of the healthcare system. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll also make progress in those those directions. My friend Shannon, who actually works at the growth marketing team at Verda, also mentioned that you have uh, a perspective on what you call the three waves of telemedicine. Um, so I'm curious uh, what that is all about. Oh, wow. You have insiders. So this is dangerous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 it's, it's just our view of how the telemedicine landscape and how telemedicine will will evolve. So you mentioned three ways. So the way we think about it, these are the three steps. So step one, which is what most people are still focused on, is enabling people to interact with their provider or physician, their doctor remotely. So pick the phone, call your doctor, rather than going to a doctor's office. Oh, it could be a computer, or it could be a smartphone app. But it doesn't really change fundamentally the nature of the episodic visit. I have a sore throat, call your doctor. So that's sort of the wave one. And obviously, that accelerated massively during COVID-19. I think that's a good thing. Uh, But it doesn't fundamentally change the way care is delivered or potentially outcomes. It's just taking an existing episodic system and enabling a virtual access to to your provider. Again, Mm -hmm. good thing, but not transformative. That's step one. Step two is... Um, what we call continuous remote care. So enabling more continuous and frequent interactions two ways, not just that somebody sending you text message reminders or you sending or patient sending provider something continuously, but also monitoring patients remotely, like remote patient monitoring. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the step two. And that's a foundational thing for Verta how we deliver care. And we call it the continuous remote care. So you monitor patients, multiple data points per day, and then you can have this two-way communication 
um, again, multiple times a day. So that's sort of a step two, taking the episodic telemedicine and turning it into a continuous remote care. And that's highly advantageous, especially for chronic diseases, because it happens 24-7. But it also has to be coupled with the provider, because if you just send a bunch of tools to people or a person and you do remote patient monitoring, you know, this goes to some database or you have an app, it doesn't necessarily transform anything. So I think that's very helpful in itself. And, you know, providers can then reactively or proactively reach out to the patient. And then the third phase is using this continuous remote care way of delivering care and closed loop system to achieve outcomes that they're previously not possible. And in the case of Verda, we use nutrition and deprescribing medications to achieve reversal of chronic diseases. and. I think that's when things get truly interesting, mm-hmm. and that's where you can deliver order of magnitude better outcomes than see massive cost savings. And, and that's basically what we have been doing at Verda since pretty much day one. And I'd say 99% of the healthcare today is in stage one. 99% of sort of telemedicine is in stage one, the episodic. Right. There's a little bit of remote patient monitoring kind of happening. And I think that's going to be accelerated by some of the changes by the CMS as well to enable remote-based monitoring codes. Mm-hmm. But almost nobody, well, really nobody else that I'm aware of is, is doing the third wave, which is what we are doing. But I, I think more and more will be the phase two and then more and more with what we do at Verda. I hope. <laughs> yeah, I hope. It's an exciting time um, for telemedicine, especially. So want to transition to some parting reflections and last words. I'd love to hear from you as to some of the biggest opportunities and also challenges you see ahead to reach this 100 million patients by 2025 goal. So challenges and opportunities. Yeah, we have a very bold mission and we want to help 100 million people. Obviously, there's about 30, 30 plus million people living with type 2 diabetes in America. So that that also means that we want to and need to go outside of the U.S. Well, I, I guess on the challenges side, I would say especially going outside of U.S., we need to use slightly different models and the economics are different. So there's that challenge, like mm-hmm. how do we transition from U.S. to international? And the other challenge is just scaling Verta-like company. You know, it's complex and we want to do it very carefully. So scaling is not as trivial as just throwing an app at more people. So that we have to be diligent. We have to invest heavily. We have to pay attention to detail, scale very, very carefully. So those are some of the the challenges. On the other hand, opportunities. The, the opportunities to save a lot of lives and the fact that better outcomes, much better outcomes and a lower cost is, again, who wouldn't like that? It's very bipartisan. It's loved by the for-profit healthcare system or healthcare industry as well. So there's a, there's a lot of opportunity for us to just do what we do, especially now that, you know, we have a product and treatment that works very well demonstrated and published and peer reviewed. We have hundreds of customers. So we've shown that this isn't just a science project. So we have happy customers. And then just sadly, like really sadly, this type 2 diabetes epidemic is just a ballooning. So the demand and the need is absolutely there. And then with COVID-19, again, nobody wanted the pandemic to happen, but people also realized that the combination of 
poor metabolic health, like obesity, type 2 diabetes, combined with the viral infection like COVID-19. Sadly, it was a deadly combination. So there was and there is a huge opportunity to just make people metabolically healthier and not only address the type 2 diabetes specific things, but then also the risk factors and the mortality with things like COVID-19. So I guess the exciting thing is there's too many people to help. And I think we are now at the point where more and more people are waking up and saying, hey, if you can reverse type 2 diabetes, it has to be reversed. Like, why not? Mm-hmm. Save lives and you save money at the same time. What is the argument against type 2 diabetes reversal? Yeah, there like, just isn't is one. That? Yeah. What is that? I'm looking forward to following your journey. And it is it is really exciting that um, there's a lot of runway ahead. And to be in the phase of the company where you're really scaling a proven product, I think is also a really fun time. So um, we'll, we'll definitely be following in the sidelines. Any reflections or parting words of advice for other entrepreneurs and founders who are hoping to make a difference in healthcare? Um, well, I would, yes. First of all, I would want as many ambitious and thoughtful and smart and entrepreneurial people as possible to, to come into this industry because there's so much work to be done and too many people are suffering and we're spending too much money. So first, I would just encourage people to not think that it's impossible. So that, that would be the, the first one. And the second one, I do, I would encourage that if you are not a healthcare insider, that you surround yourself with uh, healthcare experts, either as investors or on the board, um, because this is a complex industry. And this, I don't know, Silicon Valley idea that you kind of show up and throw a hand grenade in the middle and you sort of disrupt <laughs> the industry overnight. It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. And in fact, it would be dangerous in healthcare because human life is on the line. So my dad would be my second advice. That surround yourself with healthcare experts. And yeah, maybe sometimes you selectively have to ignore their advice because you want to do things a little differently. But listen to them very, very carefully. Um, so that's helpful. Um, and then the third one, I would say, um, those of you who aren't just selling a widget directly to consumers and who kind of work with the employers and the health plans and maybe government as, as a payment channel, I do think it is very important that you don't innovate too much. So make sure that the economic model and the, like literally the nuts and bolts of how you get paid uh, fits into the existing system because you will not be able to change <laughs> fast enough at least Mm-hmm. how people actually pay you. And so like what we've done at Verda is, yes, we are a value-based provider, but at the same time, we use all of the boring nuts and bolts, like claims-based billing, how we actually then get paid. So don't overestimate or underestimate the importance of fitting into some of the existing machinery. So those would be my encouragements. And definitely we need more ambitious, bright entrepreneurs in, in healthcare. Wonderful. Well, this has been a really fun and enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much, Sami, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you so much for running this podcast. 